time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and I'm sure you recognized uh, that music as the theme song from I Love Lucy. Well, my guest this hour has uh, put together a Lucille Ball story in a new book called The Queen of Tuesday. He is uh, a New York Times bestseller with uh, many award-winning projects under his belt, but this one is uh, a little bit different. Uh, Again, it's uh, The Queen of Tuesday by Darren Strauss. Darren joins me by phone. Darren, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. I really appreciate it. Um, I guess the first question is, um, this is a very different book than the other things that you've written for a variety of reasons, but did you just have a eureka moment, just just say all of a sudden, Lucy, i got to write something about Lucy? I did, yeah. Well, you know, I guess I should maybe say what the book is, because it is sort of an odd mix. It's, um, it's the story of Lucille Ball, and it's kind of like a biography of her um, golden period and then it's kind of like a family memoir about my grandfather and then it's the story of their passionate love affair which is invented you know it's it's interesting you mentioned your grandfather and there is um, a I, I guess it's a fictional um, torrid affair between your grandfather and Lucille Ball who he met at a party given by President Trump's father. Um, how small a world is it, Darren? <laughs> well, the funny <laughs> thing is, you know, <laughs> well, I started writing this book before Trump was president, so at the, the beginning it became much more powerful, I think, uh, when that thing transpired. Uh, so, yeah, so I should, I guess, give the setup. I, I had a dream about Lucille Ball, and I just started to do research about her, and I realized she was so amazing in ways that 
I think aren't even appreciated today, so I wanted to write about her. And I started to do research and quickly found out that she was at this party, and my grandfather was at this party, and Donald Trump's father threw it. And the party was very dramatic and cinematic itself. It was when Trump's father bought Coney Island in New York City, uh, a bunch of land there. There was a beautiful old historic landmark. And so, of course, Trump's dad wanted to tear it down and build crappy housing (laughs) where it existed. So he, in order to avoid criticism from the press, he threw a party and invited a bunch of celebrities and a bunch of real estate people. And my grandfather was a real estate person, and Lucille obviously was a celebrity. And the stroke of midnight, while the cameras flashed, they all threw bricks through this beautiful historical building and destroyed it. And that's where they met, and I thought that would be kind of a cool opening. And, you know, Lucille had been such a famous and powerful and, and important woman, but she was also humiliated publicly again and again by her husband, who had many affairs and was caught by newspapers with prostitutes. <clears throat> so I wanted to give Lucille a measure of revenge, and so I gave her an affair of her own. It, it turns out that uh, <laughs> that Ricky Ricardo had a lot of splaining to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, Desi was you know quite a character himself. I mean, he was a brilliant businessman and I think a frustrated actor because... He was clearly the second banana. And so in order to work out that sort of frustrated masculine uh, emotion, he, he he would do all kinds of terrible things. And, and the fact that they had an interracial marriage had to play a role in how much um, Desi Arnaz could really get away with. Uh, he was always sort of considered the... the uh, villain in that scenario well it's interesting i mean he was a really a brilliant business guy they both were one of the things people don't remember about lucy or not that many people remember was that she was the first female mogul in hollywood and she ended up owning all these movie studios herself and she greenlit star trek so the only reason we have star trek is because lucille ball took a chance on it um and and desi as you say was part of this interracial marriage that was sort of forced on CBS by Lucille, which was one of the other cool things she did. They, she was sort of a failure at the at, at the beginning of the TV period for her. She had run through the movie business, hadn't made it, had a radio show that sort of did okay, but wasn't doing great, and so she said to CBS, let's make it a TV show. And they said, fine but you can't have your Cuban husband as your husband because the American people won't accept it. And she demanded that they accept it. And she was in no professional position to do that at that point. Like I said, she had had sort of come to the end of her rope career-wise. So it was very brave of her to sort of to make CBS do that. And I think that helped America make some progress. I mean, the most popular marriage in the country was an interracial marriage. And, and there were a number of uh, other groundbreaking things that, that they did with that show. Um, one was when uh, Lucille Ball got pregnant and played herself as a pregnant woman and, and had a child as part of the storyline of that show. Yeah, I mean, she did a bunch of cool things, uh, for, you know, first for women. She... Um 
She was the first pregnant person shown on TV. As I said, she was the first female mogul. Um, you know, and it's hard to imagine why they wouldn't do that. But for some reason, CBS thought we cannot show a pregnant body on TV. And she, she just said, why not? And she did it. But, you know, as I said, this was a, a very prudish time. So they they were married in real life and on the air, but they couldn't be shown. This is Ricky and, and uh, Lucy on, on TV. They couldn't be shown sleeping in the same bed, which is so weird. And as that happened, as this married couple can't be shown on, t- on sleeping in the same bed because America's too prim, this article came out showing Desi Arnaz with two prostitutes. So it was kind of a testament to her popularity that the American people just accepted that and kept watching. Well, and in all fairness to Lucy, she was really that good. She was that good. But you know what's interesting? She would often ask, what am I good at? And it's sort of an interesting question. When she was 16 years old, she lived in upstate New York and ran away and went to New York City to try to become famous. And she was sent home almost immediately by producers, one of whom said, you're not talented, you're not that pretty, you're not a good singer, go home. And she she ran away 10 times and never made it and went out to L.A. and didn't really make it out there for 16 years. Oh, no, for sorry, for um, 24 years. She From 16 to 40, she just kept failing. And so I think maybe her best talent was just determination. She wouldn't quit. And the funny thing about that is she kind of made that the subject matter of the show. I only realized that when I was writing the book and I'd watched a bunch of episodes. The show is about a woman who's not talented, refusing to give up and sort of forcing herself on her husband, saying, I want to be famous, put me in the show. And that was the story of her entire life before the TV show. I mean, she was obviously very talented as a comedic actress, but but I think that's really interesting that she made her life experience the comedy of the show. It, it is interesting, and and I'm glad you pointed that out to me, because um, I, I, I guess we always think because of her legacy that she was always successful. Yeah, I mean, again, she she was a, a failed Broadway actress and then went out to L.A., and she became the queen of the bees for a while, which meant she was in a bunch of B-movies, but then they took that title away from her, and she stopped even being uh, cast in B-movies, and she was fired by RKO and then fired by MGM, and really her last shot of fame was the TV show, and then... She became so famous, it sort of redefined what fame is in this country. I mean, we don't even really have an analog today for how famous she was. Her show was so popular that when it would cut to commercial, the water tables in all the big cities would drop. The reservoirs would go down because the entire country was flushing the toilet at the same time. Everyone <laughs> rushed to the bathroom. <laughs> I, I read that, and... and uh I thought that was that was interesting, and not not only that um, the the show was so popular that that happened, but that it was so popular that people noticed that happened. Yeah, I mean, the most popular show today gets about eight million people a week on broadcast. The, her show got eighty, the equivalent of eighty-five million people a week, so more than ten times more popular than anything we're watching today. Something like 75% of homes with TVs would tune in. And I used to think that was 75% of TV viewers. 
But no, that's just 75% of the homes with TVs. That's, <laughs> that's not counting people who are out to dinner. So something like 90% of people watching TV would watch her show. And that's just incredible. Um, Darren, we have a break coming up in a couple of minutes. Um, and, and I hope you'll stick around after because there's so much to, to drill down on. But uh, before we go to break, I, I'm curious about the title, The Queen of Tuesday. Obviously, that's talking about her time slot. Well, yes and no, because the funny thing... So her show was on Monday night. And <laughs> <laughs> so, but here's the thing. So I thought, okay, two reasons I'm going to change it. One, I want to show that this is a novel and I'm taking liberties so people don't think that it's, it's truth and my grandfather really had this affair. So I thought if I change the title and say at the end that I'm doing so, it'll remind people that this is a book that's taking some liberties, even though it's very heavily researched and there are a lot of facts here and I think you can learn a lot about Lucille but the other reason was I just thought The Queen of Monday is kind of a crappy title <laughs> like no one <laughs> likes Mondays <laughs> um, it, and, that's, and that's funny I would not have remembered that it was a Monday time slot because yeah. I always saw it in reruns and reruns and syndication is uh, something that uh, Lucille Ball brought into existence. She invented the rerun, right? Which maybe we should talk about after the break. Well, we've get, we've got we've still got about okay. two minutes, so if okay, you want to yeah. go ahead and and uh, tear into that, because I found that very uh, very interesting. Yeah, one of the great business uh, innovations that she and Desi came up with was, I mean, they they changed the business in many ways. They they invented residuals. They invented reruns. So what happened was. As you mentioned, she was pregnant, and uh, and that was a new thing in TV. No one had shown that before. And then after her pregnancy, she obviously had the baby. So CBS was freaked out. They said, this is the most popular show in the history of the medium, and you're not going to be here. And at that, up to that point, they showed 52 new episodes a year. There was no such thing as a rerun. So she and Desi said, well, why don't you just show old episodes? And they didn't, most shows didn't even record their episodes. So they had nice film copies of their episodes, and uh, CBS said, no one's going to go for that, and they said, just try it. And so they did it, and they didn't lose that much of their audience share. So CBS realized, oh my God, we can save tons of money if we if we do 20 new episodes a, a year instead of 50 and just show them over and over, we can save millions of dollars a year, and that sort of remade the entire business and allowed for all kinds of... Uh, well, allowed for syndication and, and the fact that we, I mean, most people who know Lucille know her from reruns. I mean, I was born 10 years after the show or more after the show stopped running and I knew her very well. So I think it's it's a revolution in, in, in the business of entertainment. Well, and a lot of people never would have uh, discovered uh, Star Trek. It would not have become the the huge phenomenon that it is had it not been for um yeah for reruns basically yeah yeah it, that's another thing i mean she i guess she twice with star wars uh star trek rather saved uh, that show because yeah it was a bomb when it aired so it only lasted a couple seasons and then it became this huge thing in reruns which happens a bunch it, I mean, it really does it really it. does and and i want to get into that some more with you darren but we do have to take that break now so my guest is um 
the author of The Queen of Tuesday. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. The marches, the beans, the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. You'll thrill to Society's Child by Janice Pleasant Valley Sunday by the Monkees. What have they done to the rain by the Searchers? In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley. Silent Night, 7 o'clock news by Simon and Garfunkel. And who can ever forget this all-time classic? Yes, it's Barry Maguire's immortal Eve of Destruction. And, of course, my own Masters of War. All for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring vanilla fudge, blue chair, frigid pink, Moby Grape, the electric prunes, Jefferson Airplane, Lotharian hand people, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, cold in protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... 
It's time for my boot heels to be wandering. But here's something that'll tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send $3.95 and check your money order plus your name and address to Apple House Box 70K South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's $3.95 and check your money to Apple House Box 70 Do it today. Tom Sumner, program.com. The Tom Sumner, program.com. This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We're talking this hour with the uh, an award-winning author and New York Times bestseller who has a new book called The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story. His name is Darren Strauss. Darren, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around. Oh, Tom, thank you for having me. This is a great show. I'm really uh, glad and proud to be on it. Oh, nice of you to say. I appreciate that. Um but we were we were talking about uh, residuals and syndication and some of the innovations. Um, you referred in the last segment to Desi Arnaz as being a brilliant businessman, and yet uh, Lucille Ball ended up with Desi Lu Productions uh, in the end. Um, and and you talk about her being a brilliant businesswoman. Um, how? Explain that a little bit to me, because because of the affairs, because of um, the the controversy of an interracial marriage, we don't think of Desi. Uh, we always think of him as a second banana. We don't think of him as that phrase you used, a brilliant businessman. Yeah, I mean he's a troubled guy. Uh, he had affairs, as you mentioned. I mean the interesting thing is, I talked about how cool and brave it was for her, for Lucille, to force CBS to air this interracial marriage. And the reason she did it, however, was (laughs) because she knew that if she wasn't with him all the time, he would cheat on her. So she wasn't doing it for high-minded reasons. She thought, the only way my marriage will work is if we are on the show together. Otherwise, he'll cheat. And she won that battle, and he cheated anyway. So that was sort of tragic. And and he lost the business, as you say. They built up this incredible studio where they, they put on tons and tons of shows. They, uh, According to Life magazine, they aired more hours of television than any other studio in the late 50s. So it wasn't just the I Love Lucy show. There were tons and tons of Oh, Mission shows. Impossible. Mission Impossible. I didn't remember that. I, I remembered the connection, I think, about Star Trek. But but then Mission Impossible, I... I wouldn't have expected that at all. Yeah, and that was even later. In the 50s, shows you probably wouldn't even have heard of or remembered, like the Eddie Albert show, uh, Dear Miss Brooks, all these shows. So they had hours and hours of... Our Miss Brooks. Our Miss Brooks, And I do remember that show with Eve Arden. Yeah, I... Also another carryover from radio. Yeah, that's right. There were... uh, So many of the early TV stars were radio stars. But, um... But so, he lost that business because he was a, a... drinker. I mean, he was a troubled guy. So he he looked really old when he was young. I mean, he he really lived hard. Um, so that's why she was sort of forced to become a great businesswoman because she had no interest in it. And all of a sudden, she's divorced and her and her ex husband lost control of the company. So she had to take it over. But he he had great innovations. Like the 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 reason that sitcoms looked the way they do was because of the two of them. They said we should have three cameras and they should be stationary and 
um, we should do it in front of a live audience, and we should do it in Los Angeles. The interesting thing, too, was that all of TV was done in New York at that point. I mean, she basically built up L.A. <laughs> and made it the capital of television because she had failed in New York and didn't want to move back, and she said, I'm staying here. And so CBS said, well, how are we going to do that? We All our broadcast stuff is here. So she said, well, we'll record the show on film and mail it across the country. So we'll film it on Friday, and you'll get it by Sunday, and we'll air it on Monday. And that is why there are reruns, because if you look at most shows from the early 50s, they look terrible, because they were just recorded straight to, to video, and the video technology wasn't good then. The Lucy show looked great, because it was it was recorded on film, high-quality film like like movies, and just sent across the country. So when they had to do reruns, they actually had the material to do it. And that's why if you look at shows from like, I don't know, um, what, like was it Westinghouse Theater or early 50s shows, um, the Milton Berle show, they look terrible today because those are sort of bootlegged copies, whereas the Lucy show looks great. When she, you mentioned this in the last segment, Darren, that, uh, you know, that she forced the, the TV people to, to take this uh, interracial marriage into a sitcom. And, and really, sitcom was, was kind of a whole new thing, but everything in television was, was still fairly new. Um, but uh, when she made these, these demands, when she went against the grain... Um, who were the people that were willing to roll the dice on her? It was CBS, uh, and that's to their credit, because uh, you know, she had failed all over the place and tried. Uh, but the interesting thing, too, is that TV was so new and so untried that it was sort of seen as secondary to radio. So it was like, well, she can't make it in the movie, she can't make it on radio, we'll let her be on this flickering appliance and see how that works out. They, you know, people didn't know if it was going to be the the thing. But, you know, with with then the early stars, her and Milton Berle and the Honeymooners, people realized, oh, wow, this is actually bigger than the movies in some ways because more people can watch it. I mean, you know, if 85 million people see a movie, then it's the biggest movie ever, right? Well, so. and, those were, and those were very different times. There would be one television in a home, and it would sit in usually the living room. And the entire family gathered around it, and and there were maybe three choices, um, you know, in in those days, the the big three networks, and uh, everybody watched the same thing. And yeah. and famous people who became famous became famous across all demographics. Yeah, I think we're missing something in that. You know, it's interesting. We have. You know, the the freedom of choice is great. We have hundreds of options, literally, probably even thousands of options if you have, you know, streaming and all that. But, you know, we had three and sometimes two. You know, in smaller towns, there would be two networks sometimes. Um, so, yeah, uh, a big star was was watched by everybody. And I think there's something, you know, we're a very fractured country right now. And, you know, I'm not a sociologist, but I think that there's something lost when everyone's not doing the same thing. You know, whatever our difference is, everyone would watch Lucille Ball and everyone would watch Johnny Carson if they were up late. 
and you know it, it created a sense of community everyone would talk about it the next day there was something we all shared yeah i you know i'm such a fan of uh the golden age of of both radio and television and and the stars that came out of those mediums and they were literally known to everyone you know whether it was Frank Sinatra or Bob Hope or Lucille Ball or Jackie Gleason everybody knew who these people were Dick Van Dyke I mean the list goes on and on and today I'm frustrated by the fact that there are people there are television programs on on cable and on streaming services that are considered very popular and the stars of those shows are considered stars I don't know who half of them are yeah, it's interesting. I was going to, uh, I've been asked to write an essay about that for for uh, a magazine, because in the Emmys are coming up. I don't think I'm going to be able to get to it in time, unfortunately, because the Emmys are coming up on Sunday. Uh, but <clears throat> these shows that are nominated for the Emmys, they some of them, like Schitt's Creek is one, and uh, I'm blanking on the name of, of another one, but the, these nominees for Best Comedy, they get 600,000 viewers a week, and, you know, there's something to be said about a show that gets 85 million viewers a week as opposed to six, 600,000. And I think there's something lost. I mean, it's interesting. You didn't, all the people you mentioned were great, but they were all, you know, they're all a certain kind of person. They were sort of middle-class white people. So there is a nice uh, variety now, and, and we, have, we have all kinds of people represented, and that is, is obviously great. There were real problems in the 50s, uh, but... Uh, Again, I think something is lost when when so-called popular shows are seen by, you know, one-tenth of one percent of the country, whereas in the old days, half the country would tune in. And I think there's something nice about about these communal moments. You know, when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, that was watched by every kid in America, basically. That's a classic example. Elvis, too. Elvis, too, yeah. And, you know, it's the same with music. You know, we, you know, my kids are 13 years old. I... They they don't listen to the same music their friends listen to. I don't listen to the same music any of them listen to. But yeah, the Beatles were were listened to by everybody. In in fact, there's a there's a very funny uh, Beatles parody um, by uh, Alan Sherman from from back in those days. And it's you know it's it's a father talking about his his kids and their craze for the. Uh, for the Beatles and, you know, how he hates the Beatles and they should get a haircut and, you know, the music's terrible. And it, it's it's just real funny because it was a universal theme. Yeah, and Alan Sherman was great, by the way. My kids do like the uh, the camp song from him. But it's funny, I was watching um, uh, Gold, uh, uh, Goldfinger, the James Bond yeah. uh, movie recently, and... Uh, James Bond was talking about how much he hated the Beatles in that movie. It's pretty funny, I, you know. I, but there were these universal references, you know. And I guess. But I everybody guess, knew who they were. Everyone knew who they were, and it was, I guess, a generational divide, as, they, as certainly there is now. But, but yeah, there's something there's something cool about the whole country knowing and and talking about the same thing. And that's that's what they you mentioned, uh, Johnny Carson in the in the Tonight Show, and. Uh, Every every day, people went into work and talked about what they saw on the Tonight Show last night. Yeah, and I think Johnny Carson was great. And you know, again, I think it would be hard to tell people now. You know, you you can't you can't go online, you can't stream. You just have three options, and you know, people would probably revolt. But 
I don't know. I think you know. Again, we're such a we're at each other's throats. We don't have any of the same common references around the country, and I think that that's maybe one of the reasons. It's it's interesting, uh, Darren, that you made the point about diversity on television in those days, and a lot of the people I mentioned as well-known stars, universally known people, were all kind of middle-class white guys in. Um, you know, all the women were portrayed like uh, <laughs> June Cleaver, uh, Barbara Billingsley from uh, Leave It to Beaver. And, um, and in a lot of ways, Lucille Ball did begin the change by insisting that her Cuban husband be part of the, of the show and the storyline. And, um, and just the fact that she was a leading character um, yeah. you know there weren't a lot of um, great roles for women in those days yes it, it, she was a real trailblazer i think it's hard to imagine now that having a cuban husband would be controversial but it was and as you said just now it's she was the the comedy uh, of this of this comedy show she provided the laugh she had been as i said a B-movie actress, and she had been in movies with Bob Hope. <clears throat> she had been in movies with with the Marx Brothers, but she was always the straight romantic lead or, or the s- small uh, supporting character. She, no one had been uh, the com- the comedy had provided the comedy in a comedy before as a woman. I mean, she was she was you know the the Buster Keaton. She was the, she was the, the principal uh, character. In fact, uh, the show was called "I Love Lucy," not "I Love the Ricardos." Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> I don't think there was there wasn't a famous woman comedian before her, and that is pretty cool, I think. And she was great at it. She was, you know, I mentioned before that she she was the one who said, "I'm not." She would in her autobiography said, "I can't dance. I can't sing. I'm not that pretty. I'm not uh, funny on my own. I have to, can't write my own jokes. So, what is my talent?" And I think that was, you know. Uh, a little extra humility from her because she was really a great comic performer. If you look at those episodes, and there are so many great ones. Oh, just uh, just uh, just a couple um, that that you mentioned um, the uh, the scene with the grapes and and the scene in the the chocolate factory. Everybody knows these scenes. The uh, mirror image with uh, Harpo Marx. There, you know, so many of these things. Um, that are considered classic now. Yeah, and and they all depend on her being a brilliant physical comic. You know, she. I watched one recently because uh, people have been sending me <laughs> episodes now that the book is out. And so <laughs> someone sent me one recently where she was uh, taking a ballet class and her leg got stuck on the bar, and that was just incredible physical comedy. She was she was as good as anybody at that stuff. Now I want to make sure that we uh, the the. We remind people that this is this is not a uh, a straight biography. <laughs> um, it's it's actually there's a lot of truth in it, but it it's also a fictional account of an affair between your grandfather and Lucille Ball, and you know there there are other liberties taken. Um, would you consider this um, like what they call now uh, a historic novel? Yeah, I would, and the reason I told it this way, because people have been asking me, why would you do that? And so, 
I read a bunch of biographies of Lucille Ball, and I found them all pretty dry. And I think it's because she was a very withholding person. And so if you write nonfiction, if you write a biography, you're trapped by what you can know for sure. And so you can say things like 85 million or the equivalent of 85 million people <clears throat> excuse me, watched her show. And that is a fact that's interesting, but it doesn't really give you a sense of what she was like. <clears throat> and so when you write a novel, if you do a good job, you can give people a sense of kind of the texture of someone's life. So I wanted to do more than just recite facts. I wanted to try to show people what it would be like to be that famous, to be that in that sort of tumultuous love affair that she was in with her husband where she loved him passionately but he cheated on her and so I couldn't do that if I stuck to the facts and you know when you write a novel also you always ask yourself is this does this make sense is this character compelling well I felt like if I wrote about Lucille Ball I knew it would make sense because it was the truth I knew it would be compelling because she's so interesting so I thought well if I mix those two things together then it'll be the most interesting fun book I could come up with. So I sort of, you know, messed around with the forms a little bit to come up with what I think is hopefully a really complete and fun picture of, of this incredible woman. Well, at least one reviewer has called it a home run, Darren, so I think you're, uh, you may be on to something here. But how much, how much fact and, and how much fiction? Oh, good question. I think it's 90% fact i just in i just i you know my grandfather was a fascinating guy as well uh and so i, I told his story and i told lucille's story yeah, with you've, you've said in interviews that that you still have some real questions about your grandfather well the interesting thing i said this in an interview before but i say you know he's got this he had this incredible talent he's the only one i, I think in the history of the world who was able to inherit a number of New York City sky rises and still end up broke. Like there's no, there's no reason he was, he was just a terrible businessman. But he, he was able to rub shoulders with all these moguls like Trump's father and all these other New York real estate sort of geniuses. But he just was terrible at it. But he also, I mean, he did some bad things in his life. He abandoned my grandmother and moved in with her best friend. But he was such a sweet seeming charming guy that everyone forgave him even my grandmother up until she died she talked about her husband as if they were still married when he was living with her best friend and so i just always was fascinated by that but did, so, did so the best did, friend stay her best friend <laughs> no that was one relationship that didn't last um but she was sort of my step-grandmother so i you know i sort of had three grandmothers growing up but uh so he was an interesting guy and Obviously, Lucille was fascinating, so I, I did stick to, especially with Lucille. Did they actually meet at that party? They were at the same party, and, uh, you know, the, the, the story picks up with them meeting and then having this, this torrid love affair or, or uh, an affair of some kind. Um, but did they actually meet? Well, you know, the, the lawyers at Random House <laughs> want me to say that, you know, it's unclear what really happened i uh the, f the family lore was that they met and that was what i w was told um but i can't i can't prove that they that they met or knew each other in any way but but um you know uh with someone like her she's so famous and she's so great and she's so someone you really want to respect uh, when you portray her 
so I, I stuck to the facts as much as I could. And I, the, the thing that's been most gratifying, you mentioned the reviews. I've, I've been really lucky. The reviews have been, have been really kind. But the thing that was most gratifying was I actually heard from a friend of hers, this guy Lee Tannen, who was her best friend of the last decade of her life. And he wrote a book about her um, called I Loved Lucy, when, about their great friendship. And he wrote me and said that he loved the book and thought that she would love it and thought it captured who she was uh, better than any of the biographies. And so that was really gratifying to me. You know, in your research, you were talking about what a CAD uh, um, Desi Arnaz was, but um, in your research, um, uh, well, in the book, you give her an affair (laughs) as sort of, you know, um, tit for tat, but... Um, did, in your research, did you find out did she ever have affairs in the in the wake of all of uh, Desi's infidelity? Well, you know there are conflicting rumors, but I I think that if she did, and it's it's unclear, if she did, it was because she was so hurt by him. I mean, she loved him her whole life. She they divorced twice, which people don't realize either. So they were married from the 40s, and then in the late 40s, she couldn't stand his cheating. She divorced him. But the interesting thing about their love was it was so intense that <laughs> she divorced him, and then he met her outside the courthouse, and they went home together, and they got back together the next day, or that night, really. And she just couldn't... She said later she just divorced him to teach him a lesson. <laughs> but uh, it didn't really work. So then they, they, got, they were together another 12 years, and then divorced again in 1960. And uh, one of the fascinating things was their last kiss was the last, their last real-life kiss was the last kiss they shared on camera. So it was the last scene of the last episode of their last show together. And then he kissed her, the cameras turned off. She said that was it, and she served him with papers that day. And she she remarried. She married a, a comedian. But she never loved, she even would say about her second husband, you know, um... Gary Morton was his name. She would say, I never, even in her autobiography, she would say, the great love of my life was, was Desi. And imagine being married to a woman and she's writing a book and she's saying, the great love <laughs> of my life was my ex-husband. I mean, but, you know, they just had this thing. Like, they were, it was a great love, but they just couldn't make it work. Um, this is fascinating, and I... Um I'm not sure where to go here because we have another break coming up in a minute, Darren. Can I can I get you to stick around uh, and and do another little bit with me? Sure, absolutely. All right. Um, this is a, a fascinating telling of uh, the life of Lucille Ball in a book called The Queen of Tuesday, A Lucille Ball Story by Darren Strauss. Darren is my guest this hour. And uh, we're going to talk some more about that. But also, I, I'm, I'm curious what you hope people will uh, will get out of the book. So you might think about that for the next couple of minutes while we go to break. If you're listening to us on uh, 92.1 FM WFOV, our voices radio in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. We're going to let them squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. Then coming up, uh, we're going to talk with, um, uh, in the next hour, we're going to be talking with um, uh, Shannon Cizek 
from uh, Genesee Health Plan about how you can get flu shots in a drive-through, which will be uh, kind of interesting. That's going on later today uh, for folks in the uh, in the Flint area, and also it's Friday, which means we always have a musical guest. Sweet Willie T will be joining me. Uh, during the next hour and we're going to hear some uh, at least a couple of songs that were performed live on the Tom Sumner program back when we had our studio before the COVID. Anyway, we'll be right back. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. 
All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name this was This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. I'm talking this hour with the uh, author of a fun new book that's part novel and part biography of the First Lady of Television. It's called The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story by Darren Strauss, and Darren's with me by phone. Darren, welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. This is a fun conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Um, I, I mentioned I wanted to talk about what you hope people will get out of the book, but there are a couple of things that I want to touch on before we uh, before we get to that. Um, one is um, is whether or not there's anyone who really compares to her, and I, I'm thinking of um, in the early days of Saturday Night Live, and Gilda Radner did a uh, pretty fun impression of Lucille Ball, but because Lucille Ball wore so many hats, is is there a woman that, that compares to her in terms of talent and and business ability and 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 all of the uh, is able to open the kinds of doors that she did? Yeah, I don't I really don't think so. I mean partially because she opened the doors, there's not really that many doors to open or uh, anymore. Um, but yeah, you know, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is a great comic actress. I think she's probably the closest. She's won even more Emmys than Lucille has because, you know, she was great on Seinfeld. She's on Veep. So she's a very funny comic actress. But, you know, that's much more limited. I mean, her show, Veep, as we, this is sort of like what we were talking about earlier, because it was on cable, it's seen by very few people compared to Lucille. And that's just one facet of who she is anyway. The the fact that she was a TV comedian is, is you know, one part of who she was. That I can't imagine someone being such a trailblazer, such a successful businesswoman, and such a beloved TV figure. I mean, we'll never have a TV figure that beloved because, as we talked about, it's so fractured now. So there's never going to be a, anyone like her in any way, I think. You and mentioned think Oprah as maybe being on the on the short list. Yeah, Oprah's a good one. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, Oprah, Oprah has that, um, has that sort of business acumen and and uh, the big TV thing. But even Oprah, you know, she was during the day, she was political. So I think you know she she, uh, she didn't have the sort of wide um, uh, fan base. But I, yeah, Oprah's probably the closest. But even she, I don't think, had the sort of reach and the the many hats that that Lucille wore. Although Oprah, you know, Oprah did trailblaze. She was the first African-American talk show host. And so I guess that is the closest. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a good, that's a good one. Well, and she had some successful film roles. She, she is a pretty fine actor. And, um, 
and and certainly her her business acumen has uh I, I don't know if it rivals Lucille Ball, but certainly it it would compare. It does, and I should have mentioned her because she had that book club. So <laughs> it would have behooved <laughs> me to mention her. <laughs> so anyway, hey, Oprah, oh, you're you're the best. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Oprah, Oprah if you're listening, you got to check out <laughs> Queen of Tuesday. Um, Thank you. Maybe maybe there'll there'll be a book about Oprah called the Queen of Weekdays or something. <laughs> yeah, not not by me. I think I've, I've done my bit with TV here. Um, and and I guess that's that's something I'm a little curious about. Um, because you've done so many different things, how was writing this book um, tougher or easier than some of the other things you've done? So I've written, yeah, this is, uh, I guess, my sixth uh, book, and uh, if you count a graphic novel I did. And, um, you know, this was the hardest because, you know, I'd written, I'd written a memoir. My, my last book was a memoir, which I was lucky enough to uh, win the National Book Critics Circle Award for. It's called Half a Life. Um, and I, before that, I'd written some historical novels and contemporary. And I realized, okay, I want to... I want to try to sum up everything I've done. I want to write a book that incorporates all I've learned. So I'm going to write a book that's part memoir, part historical fiction, part contemporary. And so that was harder than I thought it was going to be. It took me years to do. In fact, the book is only three is only 309 pages now. When I handed it in, it was 650 pages. There was a whole other storyline uh, that I cut out. I just think it, because it was so many, there were so many balls in the air I was juggling that I... I really, it took a long time to get the balance right. And as, as you're writing this book, I always wonder when uh, writers are creating their work, when they're actually doing the writing, is is there an audience that you imagine is listening as you write? That's such a good question. I mean, I think, for me, I have to put that out of my mind, because it gets... You get too intimidated if you think, "Oh, this book could be reviewed in the in the you know Washington Post and it's going to get a bad review." Then, you know, you you will never write. So I, I just sort of pretend I'm writing just for myself, and then once it's done, you realize, "Oh, actually, it's going to be out in the world and people are going to see it." But every time, I think for me, I have to sort of forget that it's going to be seen by other people, or or I would become too self-conscious. Now, there's. Um with all of my guests, uh, Darren, as we get close to the end here, I always want guests to have an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and about all of your work, past, present, and uh, and future. Uh, do you have a website? <laughs> well, here's the thing that's crazy and sort of bums me out a little bit. I um, had a website. It was DarrenStrauss.com, and I wasn't paying attention right before this book came out. And so it lapsed, and I, th- I thought, oh, it lapsed, I should re- re-up it. But within the one day it lapsed, someone came and took my identity. And no. Yeah, so I don't have that website anymore, so i got to get a new one. You can follow me on Twitter, which is just at uh, Darren Strauss, D-A-R-I-N-S-T-R-A-U-S-S, or on Facebook. But my website was hijacked, so I don't, I don't have that at the moment. Usually, I, when I ask people about their website... It's it's always under construction. <laughs> this is this is my first hijacking. Yeah, yeah, it was sort of it really, and I, I sorry, 
emailed the person who had the address, and I said, you know, I'm Darren Strauss. What do you want with it? And they said, well, we'll give it back to you for ten thousand dollars. I said, I'm not going to spend ten thousand dollars to do that. So, so they tried yeah, to, to use my me. own name. Yeah, it was really, <laughs> really made me angry. You know, it's a well, sad time. Darren, thank you so much for spending this uh, this hour with me. It's been a real pleasure and. Uh, this is a fun book. I haven't had a chance to read it all yet, but everything I've read about it and read so far, it's um, it's absolutely delightful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been really lucky so far. So, uh, you know, I hope people continue to like it, and really thank you so much for having me on, on the show. It's been great. All right, take care. That was uh, Darren Strauss. He is the author of uh, The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story that's part... Uh, Part fiction, part novel, uh, part biography, and uh, part memoir. It's all rolled into one. Anyway, uh, we'll take a break. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Show my work. 
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.